Hi, this is Jennifer Matteris, and before I start the podcast today, I'd just like to take care of a few things. First of all, I would like to thank M.A. M.A. is one of the supporters on Patreon, and as part of being a Patreon supporter for uh, for $25 a month, um, M.A. was able to request the disaster of their choice for a, a future episode, and actually suggested a really great disaster that I had never heard of so I can't wait to research it it'll probably be the next episode or the episode after I'm not exactly sure I have to kind of look into research materials for that but um thank you very much and if anybody else would um, like to get to do that um, we do like I said we do have a patreon you can always help support the podcast that way or if you'd like something a one-time thing just to kind of help support the podcaster and help her out a little bit um, <laughs> I um, have a PayPal set up through disaster area at mail.com you can kind of throw some money in the chip do- chip uh, the tip jar if you enjoy the episode and really um, want to help with expenses like paying for a website and and SoundCloud and all of the other things that come with uh, running a podcast. And the second thing that I did want to do is give a little bit of a trigger warning. As always, you know, it is a disaster and they are, um, they can result in injury and death in this particular episode. It is a plane crash and a pretty violent one at that. So there is a little bit of description of some uh, serious impact to the the bodies involved and and um, discussion of dismembered body parts and so if, if that's something that that um, you need to uh, be aware of then that is your trigger warning and now with that out of the way thank you very much for listening and welcome to disaster area Episode 9, Pacific Southwest, Flight 1771, December 7, 1987, 43 deceased. We're going to tell the story of today's disaster a little differently than usual. Normally I would start with a quote or two related to the featured event, then give some background to the tragedy. I would tell you a little bit about the location in question, give the life story of the person responsible, and then move on to the day of the disaster itself. I would start with the moment disaster struck, examine the whole story in as much detail as possible, and then tell you what happened afterward. Today, though, we're going to solve a mystery. We're going to start right where the investigators started and uncover each piece of evidence as they did. This is a puzzle, and the first piece was uncovered when an airplane crashed at an incredibly steep angle into a California hillside on December 7th, 1987. The sloping hillside made up part of a cattle ranch just east of Cayucos, California, a small town of about 2,500 people in San Luis Obispo County. Witnesses saw the plane aiming downward at a 70-degree angle and must have needed to cover their ears when the plane broke the sound barrier, reaching about 770 miles per hour before it crashed. If the plane fell only a mile or two to the west, it would have slammed into the ocean, and its true cause might never have been discovered. 
As it was, the plane virtually disintegrated, leaving only a two-foot-wide, four-foot-deep crater in the ground and a dusting of papers which drifted on the breeze for miles. The scattering of papers made some people think at first that the plane was carrying newspapers and not much else. Notes, letters, air sickness bags, all of it would need to be collected. The crash site was first spotted by a CBS News helicopter flying over the area, and the authorities quickly began to head toward the site. Unsurprisingly, the National Transportation Safety Board, or the NTSB, immediately sent out a team to investigate the crash, just as they do for every plane crash, train disaster, and every other major transportation incident in the United States. The surprise came when the FBI also sent investigators to the site. The reason was due to the one fact the authorities knew for sure about the crash. The last transmission from the aircraft, according to air traffic control, was an ominous alert from the crew. There's gunfire aboard. Contrary to popular belief, a bullet alone is not enough to bring down a major airliner. Several planes in the course of aviation history have suffered severe structural damage leading to decompression and still managed to make their way to a safe landing site with minimal to no loss of life. One of the most visually arresting may be Aloha Airlines 243, which landed safely in Hawaii after losing a significant portion of its roof over the ocean, with a loss of only one life, that of veteran flight attendant Clarabelle Lansing. It was highly unlikely a bullet could take down a plane, but that was what the NTSB and the FBI were there to investigate. So they knew that what they had to find first and foremost was something they wouldn't normally look for in a plane crash, a gun. The NTSB and the FBI had two different jobs at the site. The NTSB was there to investigate a plane crash and the FBI was there to investigate, investigate crime on an aircraft. In this case, the two situations converged. As such, the entire investigation would depend on what occurred inside that aircraft. If a crime did not happen and the gunshots were simply an accident of some sort, the NTSB would be in the lead. But if a crime did occur, the FBI would take over with the NTSB there to assist by looking for how the crime itself led to the crash. The flight was Pacific Southwest Flight 1771, an hour-long flight from Los Angeles to San Francisco. The plane, a British-built BAE-146 meant for short-haul flights, was named the Smile of Stockton. The moniker presumably came from the black line on the plane looping under the cockpit like a chin strap and making the plane look as though it was smiling. It's probably trite to say something like, but now the smile was gone, but it was unfortunately true in more ways than one in this case. The plane was gone, and so was the cockpit. So were the wings and the tail. The aircraft was almost completely obliterated. Discovering what had caused the crash would be a monumental challenge given the size of the pieces which remained. It wasn't just the plane which shattered. No full bodies were found at the site. The largest pieces found were, in some cases, just enough to identify them. A hand, feet still encased in their shoes, jawbones with a few teeth still intact. In the end, the remains of 27 of the victims would never be identified. 
The black boxes were quickly recovered. First the voice recorder, badly mangled from the impact of the crash, and then the data recorder, far more damaged. The crushed boxes showed just how horrific the final moments of the flight must have been. Given the damage, investigators estimated the impact forces at 5,000 Gs. Riders on a roller coaster experience G-forces normally not more than 4 Gs, and fighter pilots can handle sustained impact forces of 9 Gs. What the passengers of Flight 1771 experienced before death could only be described as torture. The data recorder was practically a lost cause. All that was left of the tape inside its case was a six to eight inch length of tape which had been wound around the tape heads, protecting it. Investigators were only able to recover six seconds worth of data from the tape, but it was enough to make an impression. According to the data, the plane worked fine up until someone pushed forward the control column, sending the plane into a dizzying acceleration toward the ground which broke the sound barrier. When the plane struck the ground, it compressed the earth, the earth beneath it and sent lighter objects like papers flying into the air. The voice recorder, however, was a different matter. It had been violently damaged, but the tape inside was salvageable. So the FBI sent it to their headquarters to be repaired and analyzed. At the crash site, investigators unearthed a piece of a seat with a bullet hole piercing through it. They also found the gun in two pieces at the site two days after the crash. The first piece was the barrel of a 44 Magnum, snapped off from the rest of the gun like a pencil tip. A few hours later, searchers found the second piece, a cylinder with six spent cartridges still inside. An even more gruesome discovery emerged when the investigators looked at the gap between the trigger and the guard of the gun, a piece of a fingertip lodged in the space like a morbid bookmark. Two questions now needed to be answered. How did someone manage to get a 44 Magnum onto an airplane? And who was the person whose finger had been on the trigger when the crash occurred? The answer to the first question was easier to discover than the investigators may have liked. LAX International Airport had a policy at the time, allowing airline employees with valid IDs to bypass security. This meant that the gun more than likely got onto the plane in the hands of an employee of Pacific Southwest or US Air, its parent company. Any employee could simply flash a badge and walk through security with a smile on their face and a gun tucked in their bag. However, the investigators now possessed a clue to just which employee that may have been. Agents transported the portion of the fingertip stuck in the Magnum's trigger guard to an FBI laboratory to see if the print could be lifted from the remaining skin. It was a lucky, if horrific, break. When the cassette tape of the black box recording returned to the crash site, those heading up the investigation found a car at the site with a tape deck and gathered around the speakers to listen. What they heard was equal parts extraordinary and terrifying. For the first 28 minutes of the recording, it was a normal flight. Pilot James Lindemood and First Officer James Nunn spoke with air traffic control, chatted with a flight attendant, made small talk about what they'd gotten their kids for Christmas that year. The plane, which left LAX at precisely 3.56 p.m., was at 22,000 feet over San Luis Obispo County on a beautiful December day. At a certain point, someone could be heard going to the laboratory just outside the cockpit. 
Not long after, they left the laboratory. Then two gunshots were clearly heard, muffled by their distance from the flight recorder. The startled crew radioed air traffic control that there had been gunshots aboard the aircraft. Before they could respond to the air traffic controller's question about whether or not they'd like to land in Monterey, the door to the cockpit was flung open and head flight attendant Deborah Neal said, we have a problem. Either the pilot or the first officer said, what's the problem? Another gunshot, this one closer than the initial shots. Then a man's voice said, I'm the problem. Two more gunshots. Shortly after this, windscreen noise filled the recording from the plane accelerating into the dive. Then a final shot could be heard on the tape. Only seconds later, the plane hit the ground. All of this, from the first gunshot to the moment of impact, lasted exactly 47 seconds. It was now clear that someone had not only brought a gun aboard, but that this had definitely not been an accident. A man fired off shots in the cabin, followed the flight attendant into the cockpit, and then shot her, and following a tossed off remark, the flight crew as well. Whoever received the final shot would have to be a question for later. The results of the fingerprinting were turned quickly back from the lab. They had a match. U.S. Air employee David Burke. David Burke worked for U.S. Air as a ticket agent, or at least he had done so until a few short weeks earlier. It didn't take long for investigators to find out that U.S. Air fired Burke on November 19th, ostensibly for the theft of $69 from the in-flight bar fund. However, suspicion arose that Burke was guilty of theft of other items to the tune of thousands of dollars. It wasn't the first time U.S. Air thought Burke might be involved with criminal activities involving the airline. Burke previously worked out of Rochester, but left for California when accusations popped up that he might be using his job to smuggle cocaine from Jamaica, where his family originally came from before immigrating to Britain. Police suspected he used the funds to buy a house in the suburbs and an expensive car there, even though he allegedly committed petty crimes such as shoplifting $16 worth of sirloin steak from a Rochester grocery store. The FBI narrowed their investigation on David Burke and what might have driven him to do something so absolutely unimaginable as take the lives of 42 innocent people. At the same time, the NTSB researched the location of the bullet-pierced seat found earlier and identified it as having been in row 4, seat C. The manifest showed that seat as unoccupied. However, a 44 Magnum being as powerful as it is, the bullet could easily have gone through the seat in front of it. The man sitting in row 3, seat C, was another U.S. Air employee, Ray Thompson, David Burke's former supervisor. Ray Thompson lived in San Francisco and commuted every day home from work in Los Angeles on Flight 1771, a fact which was common knowledge among other employees of the company. The FBI soon learned why Ray Thompson might have been a target when they researched Burke's schedule for the day. When U.S. Air fired Burke over the bar fund theft, he appealed. According to one of his brothers, appealing a different dispute with the airline in Rochester resulted in his being compensated with back pay, which allowed him to buy a three-bedroom condo when he moved to Los Angeles in 1986. So Burke had reason to believe this appeal might come to a positive end as well. He arrived at 2 p.m. on Monday, December 7th, to discuss his appeal decision, 
a decision made and delivered to Burke by Ray Thompson. Unsurprisingly, Thompson denied his appeal. According to witnesses, Burke was understandably upset. When he left Thompson's office, the tension grew thick, and trying to make things a little better, Thompson's secretary awkwardly said, I hope you have a nice day. Oh, I plan to have a very nice day, Burke snapped. What he did after leaving the office can only be guessed. The assumption is that he went to his locker to get the gun, which was lent to him by a fellow employee, Joseph Drabick, a short while before the crash. He hid the gun on his person and bought a ticket on flight 1771, a plane everyone and their mother at LAX knew Thompson flew home on every day. Then he slipped to security. US Air later claimed they required Burke turn in his ID on November 19th when he was initially fired and the card was destroyed. But given his public presence as a ticket agent for the company, the security may not have even asked for it. They knew Burke's face and perhaps simply just waved him through. At the crash site, in the midst of collecting every receipt and napkin and newspaper sheet they came across, searchers found an interesting item. It was a note written on the back of an air sickness bag from the plane. The note read, Hi, Ray. I think it's sort of ironical that we end up like this. I asked for leniency for my family, remember? Well, I got none, and you'll get none. Investigators would later identify the handwriting as that of David Burke. With all the evidence they gathered, the FBI and NTSB were able to piece together a strong case for what happened on PSA Flight 1771. The plane departed LAX a few minutes before 4 o'clock, with Ray Thompson seated in row 3, and David Burke elsewhere on the flight, presumably out of Thompson's view. For over 20 minutes, Burke sat in his seat and seethed with silent anger. At some point, he found the air sickness bag and wrote the note to Thompson, every word of it dripping with the festering urge for revenge he planned to take. Then he summoned his nerve, got up, and headed to the lavatory, dropping the air sickness bag in Thompson's lap as he passed by. Once in the plane's lavatory, Burke removed the gun from wherever he had concealed it, checking it over, giving Thompson enough time to read the note, and develop a genuine sense of dread as to what was about to happen next. When he deemed it long enough, he stepped out of the lavatory, walked over to row three, and shot Ray Thompson twice with the forty-four Magnum. The bullets went through Thompson and into the seat behind him. At this point, chaos erupted. In the cockpit, Linda Mooden Nunn alerted air traffic control to the sound of gunshots and set off a secret distress signal. Flight attendant Deborah Neal burst into the cockpit and said, we have a problem. Either Linda Mood or Nunn asked, what's the problem? Burke then shot Neil and said, I'm the problem. Then he shot both Linda Mood and Nunn. At this point, either their bodies slumped forward and pushed the control column forward as well, or Burke did it himself, sending the plane into its final dive. But who received the final shot? Investigators thought it unlikely Burke would have killed himself, given the fact that he was still clearly holding the gun when the plane struck the ground. The piece of flesh, flesh left in the trigger guard wouldn't have been there otherwise. So who else was left who would have deserved a bullet, at least by Burke's standards at that precise moment?
The strongest contender was Pacific Southwest's chief pilot, Douglas Arthur. A PSA employee since 1975, Arthur had logged 7,500 flight hours and in all likelihood would have tried to get past Burke to bring the plane out of his treacherous dive, its treacherous dive, if he could. Arthur's family already had a tragic history with Pacific Southwest and plane crashes. In 1978, PSA Flight 182 collided with a private Cessna over the streets of San Diego, killing 144 people. One of those people was flight attendant Donald St. Germain, Douglas Arthur's brother-in-law. This would account for each bullet in Burke's gun. The first two shots for Thompson, one each for Neil, Lindemood, and Gunn, none, excuse me, and the final bullet for Douglas Arthur to stop him from pulling the plane out of its dangerous dive. More research into Burke's background uncovered more unsettling facts. A father of seven who never married any of the mothers of his children, Burke had most recently been dating Jacqueline Camacho, a woman with a six-year-old daughter herself. Camacho told police that the Friday before the crash, which happened on Monday, Burke held her and her daughter at gunpoint on a six-hour car ride before finally releasing them. She did not tell police at that time. She also let them listen to an answering machine message he left for her before getting on the plane. Jackie, this is David. I'm on my way to San Francisco Flight 1771. I love you. I really wish I could say more, but I do love you. His brothers vehemently denied his involvement in a New York Times article only a few days after the crash. One noted that Burke had been expecting a promotion at US Air, which had eventually gone to a white woman with only a third of his experience. They defended his purchase of a $100,000 Mercedes-Benz, which police suspected he bought with funds received from drug smuggling. They claimed that he used his connections with the airlines, as well as his personal connections, to buy it in Germany and have it shipped over to America. They insisted that another reason for the crash might be discovered with further investigation. But that was on December 11th, only four days following the disaster. Further investigation only cemented initial suspicions in David Burke's guilt. In the wake of the disaster, several changes occurred, both in a legal and business capacity. Laws were passed to ensure the immediate seizure of all airline employee credentials upon termination, as well as to demand the flight crew and other airline workers be subjected to the same security inspection as passengers. However, stronger security measures, measures such as cockpit doors, which were more difficult for passengers to enter, would not come until after the events of 9-11. Another change came after the president of Chevron US, James Silla, and three of the company's public affairs execs died in the crash, as well as three officials of Pacific Bell. Many businesses responded to the crash by noting that um, groups of exec executives on business trips would not be allowed to share the same flight to avoid just such a tragedy. Pacific Southwest Flight 1771 was the worst mass murder in California history. The NTSB ruled that the probable causes of the crash were control interference, sabotage, and quote unquote, uh, open quotes, excuse me, emotional reaction, close quotes, by David Burke. The crash would also later be used as the standard for a maximum credible accident for the 1987 Murkowski Amendment, which required a cask of plutonium being transported on international flights over U.S. territory to be able to survive the worst possible scenario.
Okay, so I know this episode is a little short, and it may seem as if it was a little structured. Um, and there's a reason for that. Um, I did write uh, my notes for this particular podcast a little differently than I normally do. I normally have sort of an outline that I go through, um, and it allows me to be a little more loose with what I um uh, talking about, but I really wanted to be a little more structured with this particular story because it is so it is the details that matter and it it fascinates me as a disaster and it has fascinated me since I found out about it only a few years ago really um I think the first that I had ever heard about it was when I watched the air crash investigation episode which is um it's actually a really interesting episode because it does kind of follow along the same route that I did with this episode which is basically you start with crash and you find every little bit of these clues one by one and it kind of adds up to David Burke being the person who um, basically murdered 42 people on this plane um, and what fascinates me about it is is that there was nothing left of this plane you see pictures of this crash and I, I mean I've seen a lot of pictures of a lot of plane crashes I just I mean, you know, they're it's they're terrible tragedies, but it's really interesting to see what happens to these planes after these crashes. I mean, some of them hold up really well in the course of some terrible, you know, events, terrible things happening to the planes, and some of them are just not there anymore. I mean, I think that was one of the, that's one of the things that always bothers me about the parts of 9-11 conspiracy theories where they say, well, you know, obviously there were no planes, you know, because there was nothing left of them. Well, here's a plane which there was nothing left of. There was, I mean, you look at pictures and it is literally, as I described earlier in the podcast, it's all you see is papers on this hillside. It's just papers and that little scar in the ground that is relatively not much of 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 a crash site um and like i said it really was very close to the ocean if you look at it on google maps it's maybe like a mile two miles if that if it had been just a little bit to the west i mean it's highly unlikely that they would have figured out exactly what was going on. They, they could have come to the conclusion that David Burke was the one who did it, but they really wouldn't have, have had the same amount of evidence or the same type of evidence, um, you know, unless, you know, they... I can't imagine that they would have, have been able to find the same thing out. Although... I mean, it's impressive enough as it is. They had literally nothing. I mean, in terms of you know, bodies, like I said, they had no full bodies. They had hands and they had feet and they had jaw bones. And, and actually one of the things that I didn't um, throw into those notes is that one of the jaw bones that they found, which had the most teeth in it, it had six teeth was actually that of David Burke. So, you know, here is, uh, here is a crash that basically just destroyed everything on board and yet the NTSB has such has such experience with plane crashes and, and knows so well what to look for and what they need to find and um, and what's um, you know what facts they need to look for 
that they were able to go from what looked like nothing and find out exactly what happened on this flight. And it's incredibly impressive. You, I mean, of, of all the, of all the stories that I've read, um, and I am, I will say, I mean, as as a disasters dork, I do follow the NTSB on Twitter. So every time there is a disaster, I do kind of keep up with what's going on that way. And so, um, you know, it feels kind of kind of weird. That was one of the highlights of 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 my day, the day that um, I tweeted something at, at the NTSB and they tweeted back. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I always, I always kind of find it interesting. Um, just, just, um, I, I mean, you know, here are very educated people who know things about um, plane crashes that, I mean, I've picked up a lot. I, I, I have literally picked up a lot from um you know i've 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 kind of just by osmosis just by reading about disasters i've learned a lot about a lot more about um uh flight science and that sort of thing that i than i ever would have thought i would but um uh you know it's just it's just interesting to see you know this is a crime scene basically and the ntsb which does not do crime scenes they do accident investigations and to see them take their their expertise and kind of translate it for something which really was not the same thing that they normally do. I mean, it, it feels like it should be, but it really, I mean, it, it, like I said, it's a crime scene. You're looking for clues and you're not looking for the same sort of clues that they're normally looking for, which is here is an engine and here, you know, here's an engine the size of a Volkswagen Beetle and here's a, you know, here's, here's, here's where the tail is and here's where the wings are. I mean, they, they normally have such big clues to work with. And in this case, they had, you know, the, the, the clues that we're looking at here are like the, the barrel of a 44 Magnum and, and the, the, um, and, and an air sickness bag and, um, and, and a fingertip and, and a piece of an airplane seat. I mean, it, from the sound of everything, you could, you could put all of the clues that they used to, to find out about, you, you find out what caused this crash in, into that air sickness bag, basically. Um, which, you know, it, I find incredibly impressive. It's it's one of the stories about um, the NTSB's work that has uh, fascinated me from the moment I found out about it. Because it is. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Here are your clues. What are you going to do with them? And it also fascinates me just as somebody who's interested in these mass murders. I mean, normally, in terms of mass shootings, you have people who you know, they go out and they get a gun that, um, you know, they, I mean, these days, you know, you go out and you get a semi-automatic and then you go to, you know, you go to a public place and you just start shooting. Um, in this case, he only had to fire only two of those shots and he really were, were enough to, for him to kill 42 people. He only needed six bullets at the most, not even for him to be one of the worst mass murderers in American history. And I think what's what's um, disappointing about reading the story is that you can see where it was kind of a warning for what was to come on later flights 
um, you know, on 9-11, these sorts of things. They could have learned that, okay, you know what, maybe we should make sure that people cannot come into the into the cockpit, you know, that you can't just have random strangers and random pilots going into the cockpit. At the same time, you look at a crash like the German Wings crash from last year in which the pilot um, committed suicide by driving the plane into the ground and waited until... Um, I, I, I'm sorry, I haven't really read up a lot on it yet. I really should, but um, I can't remember if it was the co-pilot or the pilot, but basically um, he drove the plane into the ground and um, locked out his partner in the cockpit and you know, when he went to the bathroom or went for a drink or something along those lines. I know that's that's the same thing that happened to a Silk Air flight, um, or at least that's what's speculated. Um, I believe it was in Malaysia that it happened, and Malaysia did not agree with the NTSB's findings on that regard. Um, you know, when it comes to um, airplane pilots and flight crew and security and those sorts of things, um, I mean this. I mean this case, obviously, you know, that's sort of an extension of this. You can make sure that the cockpit doors lock, but at the same time, if you're going to do that, that's great. You also have to make sure that you know when the, the pilot and the co-pilot are locked in that cockpit, that they aren't the ones who you need to worry about. Um. I know this is probably going to be a short episode, um, but, um, you know, it's a very, I mean, it's a very simple plane crash, but it's a, it's a plane crash that I really wanted to talk about because it is, um, um, you know, just, I just find it interesting in terms of the investigation and, and what caused it and, and how they responded afterward. And, and you can see where they, made suggest you know somebody made suggestions and said okay this is where the problem is you need to make sure that these crazy people with guns you know if somebody does get on the plane with a weapon that they cannot get into the cockpit and um you know that didn't really happen after this and you know 911 is 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 the result and you kind of read up on this this disaster and you read up on this plane crash and you think you know you can almost see them getting there and you kind of want to say you know keep going keep 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 going with these rules and regulations i mean you know it seems like there's you know you kind of want to go oh more rules but at the same time no no you're going to need this rule later on please do this and and they didn't and then 9-11 happened Um, so, like I said, short episode. Um, next episode, I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing next. Like I said, um, I did get a great request from MA, and I'm thinking of doing that next, but I may save that for the episode after that because, um, because I, like I said, I haven't heard of it. And I, I was really excited to hear about a new, a new disaster that I'd never really heard of before. So that was... That was a lot of fun, but I do have to read up on it, do a lot of research, um, maybe see if there's any books about it, um, and we'll see how that goes. But um, until next time, stay safe.